3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast. It is the 1st of March 2022 and we're here in... Still quite human Melbourne. My name is Evie and I've got Fung in the other studio. Good morning, Evie. How are you? I'm pretty good. Um, I really like the way that you said it's the first of March. <laughs> like there was so much, I don't know, surprise. <laughs> I know. I just like, where where is the start of this year gone? I just can't believe it. Um, yeah, I, I, I just was um, complaining to Giselle this morning that um, just getting up is getting a bit harder again now, just with no daylight at all. So and now there's the slow descent into winter. <laughs> yes, I feel like it's funny how quickly we adapt to, you know, the weather and, and, and it changing. Um, I feel like it was only yesterday when we were rejoicing over the fact that it was getting so bright <laughs> at 6 o'clock in the morning um, and now... It's so fleeting. <laughs> it really is. So best to make the most of it when we can. Exactly. There's going to be a week of, you know, nice weather still. So it's going to be lovely nonetheless. Um, you know, we're kind of lucky that, you know, at least summer sort of still reaches into March a little bit. But Yeah, yeah I would say um, just... This is more a reminder to myself, but <laughs> I guess I'll just say it on air. Remember to put on sunscreen. Yes. I feel like, um, yeah, I I think I still need to remind myself every now and then just because it's not sunny or oh, blazing hot I doesn't mean so you don't put on sunscreen. Yeah. Mm. Um, especially like if you're going swimming, which I've been starting to do recently, remember to reapply every two hours. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's great. Do you go swimming um, like in the ocean or oh, the gosh. local pool? I wish I could go swimming regularly in the ocean. That's mm. my Sydney cider coming out. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I go to um, either Fitzroy or Carlton Pool. I've started to do, well, I'm, I've now committed to starting to do lap swimming, but I went for the first time on the weekend and was pretty humiliated by how much I need to catch up. <laughs> mm, that's all right. Well, I feel like swimming is such a – I find it really meditative. Yes. Um, I'm not a, a runner, so swimming is, Yeah. I find – you know, the most relaxing form of exercise. So that sounds great, Evie. I hope I hope you continue. Yeah. I just want to get up to like being able to do like a kilometer in a session again. I used to be able I used to be like an okay swimmer. But yeah, yeah I, I got to like about I was in my head, I was like, okay, if I get to like 500, I'll be happy, 500 metres. Um, I got to about 400 and I just had to sit down on a bench because I just completely ran out of energy. Oh, yeah. It's, it really <laughs> takes a lot out of you. I get really thirsty when I swim. Yeah. And then afterwards, I immediately want like a potato cake or chips. Yes. I think it just transports me back to being a kid. Yeah. And afterwards, just like asking your parents for some sort of Fried salty, carb. yeah, fried <laughs> snack. Um, even if, yeah, even when I'm swimming 
early in the morning. That's all I want afterwards. That's given me such a good idea for like, um, I'm going to go swimming again on Wednesday because I'm getting my hair done on Thursday, but I'm going to totally get fish and chips afterwards. Yeah, I feel like that's (laughs) the perfect post-swim snack. Delicious. Um, We've got so much coming up on the show today. Um, Let's have a chat about what's coming up. Yeah, so first of all, we're revisiting um, an interview that we had with Catherine Burthen, who is a researcher um, at RMIT looking at urban gardens across the city of Melbourne. And um, we're revisiting this because on the weekend I caught up with Emma Cutting, who is the founder of the Heart Gardening Project. And that really links in with with Catherine's research and, and what she talked about at a, um, in our show at the end of last year. So I thought it would be great to revisit that um, ahead of my interview with Emma Cutting, where we spoke about urban gardens, um, street gardening, native bees and other insects and the joy that gardening can bring to people as individuals and also as a community. That sounds amazing. I, I just remember the little pictures of bees sleeping in flowers yes. from last year. <laughs> yes. Okay. Any excuse to repost those. Yes. Um, we've also got Viv Langford from the Climate Action Show on Monday, um, catching up with Dr. Ruth Adler, um, who is also a former 3CR presenter and diplomat. Uh, so she was the Australian ambassador in Ireland, and um, they're just having a chat about the Green Climate Fund mm-hmm. and um, the Paris Agreement. Uh, And then later in the show, I will have Rebecca Glenn from the Centre for Women's Economic Safety uh, just having a chat about uh, economic abuse, but more specifically um, the program in which um, people were able to access their superannuation in 2020 um, for emergency purposes. Uh, Unfortunately, that has been misused in a way um, that partners, abusive partners have been uh, able to coerce uh, women into withdrawing their funds early. Um, so we're going to have a chat about that and the consequences of that as well. Um, yeah, I do remember you mentioning that last week. So. Oh, yeah. it's. Um, I, I think there's now some research and now there's going to be ongoing sort of investigations into how sort of widespread that's been. So I'd be really interested to talk to her about that. Yeah. And I know, uh, lastly, you'll be speaking with Lara, who is um, one of the 3CR volunteers and uh, is also organising this year's 3CR International Women's Day Street Party, which is happening next week from 4 to 8pm in um, Little Victoria Street, which is just outside the studios. It's going to be an amazing event be COVID safe. There'll be heaps of amazing musicians and other people from the community there. Um, and it will be broadcast live. It's part of 3CR's 24-hour broadcast for International Women's Day. Um, I'll be there. So Yeah. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, be, we'll yeah, have a nice um, big show uh, next week yes. as well. I'm yes. really looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, we'll be uh, chatting to Lara about what listeners can expect from – the broadcast and and if anyone wants to come down to the studios next Tuesday, um, what kind of music and and other things that we'll have on. So that will be a great way to end today's show. Yeah, uh, so I'm so excited to um, for this today's show. Um, before we get going, let's have a quick announcement. We'll be right back. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. 
Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, We'll just go through some news headlines this morning. Um, As you would probably be aware, uh, New South Wales and Queensland are still experiencing unprecedented floods. Uh, The SES has issued evacuation orders um, and also telling people don't go home. If if your property has been flooded or your street's been flooded, don't just go out and have a look. Um, I I was actually, I I, I saw that and I, over the last week, you know, a few days, I've just seen heaps of pictures of like, you know, people just standing and watching the floodwaters and that sort of thing. Um, don't do that. Go uh, go to higher ground and stay in the evacuation centres. Um, the Lismore mayor himself has said um, that there's lots of low-lying areas um, that have been told to evacuate. Um, they've, the SES fears that properties in the low-lying areas of Ballina, North Ballina and West Ballina and areas south of that will become flood-affected and for residents in these towns to evacuate to a safe location. Uh, Another thing um, that they are also cautioning is not also to be careful of rising floodwaters as they will rise very quickly without notice. Don't go swimming in them. Don't try to, um, you know, get into them at all. Um, Just stay on higher ground. Um, residents shouldn't risk their lives in an effort to evacuate and they should be evacuating now. Um, there's loads of really just shocking stories of people trying to escape and um, trying to um, get themselves and, you know, their sort of rest of their lives possessions out of the floodwaters. Um, yeah, so just keep uh, updated if you know people who are trying to get um, out of the floodwaters as well. There's a lot of resources on the SES website where you can let them know on their behalf as well. Yeah, the images have been yeah. really terrifying. And um, every time this happens, you just think, yeah, climate action, that's what we need yeah. right now, not any time in the future, but yeah. actually we should have taken action quite a while ago. But but is it, it is important that we act now and it's also I think um, it's worth noting what people um, in power do at this time Uh, there's been a lot of controversy around Peter Dutton posting a GoFundMe instead of uh, making use of the emergency fund that is specifically in place um, for using in situations like this Um, there is I believe um, several you know millions of dollars in that fund that have not been used um, on the floods as yet. Um, There's, you know, I think Scott Morrison yesterday said that he didn't see the concern as to why, um, you know, Peter Dutton would post um, a GoFundMe for a fundraiser. Um, It seems like not a lot of people have actually been donating to that. Um, There was one or two, like, large donations, um, but... 
Um, I think more or less people have sort of uh, expressed some scepticism as to this being the way forward Mm. uh, in assisting people in a crisis. Uh, And in other news, just a quick update on what's happening in Ukraine. Dozens of people have been killed and hundreds more wounded in rocket strikes by Russian forces on the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, um, according to the Ukrainian Interior Ministry. Um, Blasts have been heard in Kiev. Um, There have been some high-level talks between Ukraine and Russia that took place on the border with Belarus on Monday morning, Um, but that ended without any sort of uh, breakthrough. Um, The French President Emmanuel Macron spoke with uh, Vladimir Putin on Monday um, just to reiterate demands to halt Russia's offensive in Ukraine. Uh, The UK... President Vladimir Vladimir Zelensky uh, said he has signed an official request for Ukraine to join the EU um, and a senior EU official has said that leaders may discuss the possibility of Ukrainian membership at an informal summit in March. Um, The EU is preparing to grant Ukrainians who flee the war the right to stay and work um, uh, in, in any EU country for up to three years. Um, So, yeah, just stay tuned um, to 3CR. I know that there are a lot of programs that are um, bringing you news and um, stories about about Ukraine. Yeah, um, and one more story for today, uh, just an interesting one that's come out of Victoria. Uh, An administrative bungle has left 1,000 Victorian police officers wrongly sworn in. Uh, Now, I'm not 100% um, sort of understanding of the circumstances in which they were improperly sworn in, um, but... Basically, it appears that more than a thousand officers have been carrying guns and issuing charges without the proper authorization. This is quite serious, as of course this will mean that it will affect um, warrants that they've carried out, uh, arrests that they've made. In fact, there are quite a few of these officers who are involved in the Danny Laidley um, arrest and charging as well. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned to that. We'll um, keep you updated on the news with that um, to see whether this affects the outcome of cases in which people have been charged or arrested. Mm. Okay, um, so we've got a big show this morning. We'll be right back after these messages. Hello, I'm Ayan Shirwa, the host of 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. If you're a long-time 3CR listener, what is up? And if you're a new listener, welcome. 3CR is home to 400 volunteers and over 126 programs. Every year, we bring you stories that concern all of us. The workers, the unemployed, folks from all walks of life. And unlike the corporate shills, our funding comes directly from the community. In return, we shine the spotlight on stories about the climate crisis, Indigenous communities' fight for sovereignty, Palestinian perspectives, and any of the music or art programs 3CR champions. To help your favourite grassroots media stay on air, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's just past 7.15 and we are now going to revisit an interview that we had with Catherine Burthen, who is a PhD researcher with the Interdisciplinary Conservation Science Research Group, or otherwise known as Icon Science at RMIT. Catherine's research looks at urban gardens across the city of Melbourne, including the Royal Botanical Gardens and the Australian Native Garden in Royal Park, to see which plants are preferred by the native bees and honeybees, hoverflies and butterflies, ants and wasps, all of which call the city home. Catherine joined us in December 2021 to talk us through the current housing and food crisis affecting the city's native bees. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So could you please start by telling us more about your area of research? Thanks. Well, I study insects and um insects and arachnids in cities, basically, but my main focus is on flower-loving insects like native bees. And I'm interested in studying these because I think that cities are really excellent opportunities for conservation of these really small organisms. They only exist at an entire green space, like the Botanic Gardens is like an entire city for a small insect that can't fly very far. So we have huge opportunities in cities to provide resources for these species. And also they're just really cool. They have lots of different diversity in shapes and sizes. Um, And once you get to know them, they're really likeable. Yeah, I think whenever we talk about conservation of wildlife, we tend to think of much bigger creatures. So it's great to know that there are people out there who are focused on insects, which is great. Um, Could you tell us more about native bees? I'm not sure about the rest of the Tuesday Breakfast team, but I don't know if I actually know what a native bee looks like. Is it what I'm thinking when I picture a bee? Possibly not. A lot of the media is dominated by images of honeybees, which are big and yellow and black bees. But most Australian native bees are quite small. They can range between, I mean, the smallest in Australia is two millimetres long. Um, And in Victoria, you're likely to get bees that range from about five millimetres to up to a centimetre long. Um, So uh, I don't have a good comparison for how big that is, but most flowers are bigger than our native bees. Wow. (laughs) And um, they... They often come in different colours, so a lot of them, some of our native bees are hairless and they'll be black with little highlights of yellow on them. Um, The most common that you'll see is a blue-banded bee. They are quite big compared to most of our bees and they have this vibrant bright bright blue abdomen with bright blue stripes on it um, and reddish-brown furry furry, um, thoraxes, which is kind of like your midsection, I guess. We'll have to... (laughs) As far as bee goes. We'll have to pop a photo up on our um, page later this morning so that people can easily identify them. But how do they uh, help? Um, how do they help the our our landscape? I mean, I know bees um, play a, a very big role in um, 
and with to do with pollination and of course we know with honeybees they produce honey but um what what contributions do native bees uh give to us they a big one is pollination so they're good at pollinating our homegrown veggies and fruits but they're also really important in agricultural purposes and the blue-banded bee that i was mentioning before has a special type of pollination that's really useful for things like tomatoes that actually have their pollen is locked up inside very solid structures and these bees are able to do what's called buzz pollination where they shake their abdomen at a certain rate and it releases the pollen from these types of flowers. So actually honeybees are not very good at pollinating those kinds of things. We need our native bees to do that. And um, But they also, and I think it's often forgotten, that they're part of a bigger food chain. So having these insects in our gardens is useful for attracting birds and lizards that we love as well. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. Um, and, and we'll get to, you know, um, what plants, honey, uh, sorry, native bees prefer just in a moment. But what, what can you tell us about um, our urban gardens or any projects that are popping up in the city to help attract more native bees and other insects? There's a project happening down in South Melbourne called the Heart Gardens Project. It's run by Emma Cutting. And she's actually got a bigger project in mind. She's trying to connect um, Westgate Park to the Botanic Gardens. And that's really important because for a small insects, it's hard to move around the city. And so her goal is to create these street gardens as a, as a line that will help connect these two rather large. It's kind of like connecting two metropolises by a road for bees um, through the city. And so that's really interesting. She's got a lot of resources available at her website. Um, that's the Heart Gardening. If you Google Heart Gardening, I can't remember the full website title, but you'll be able to find her and her resources. But there's also, the city of Melbourne is doing some interesting pollinator plantings along, um, along what is the street called? Along a couple of streets in Melbourne, you'll have seen them in the north of Melbourne. Um, and then there's also the woody, woody native gardens in Burung, down next to, um, there's that little section as you go down from below the MCG. There's a couple of woody gardens that are just examples of flowering gardens that contain all native woody species. Um, and the Australian Native Garden in Royal Park is really useful to check out as well if you need inspiration for your own garden because they have a lot of native species growing in a very highly cultivated. Yeah, I know I know a lot of people have really gotten into gardening uh, since COVID. And so if there are any people out there listening, if you are looking for something to do during the school holidays, maybe perhaps you could do like a little tour of the city and try to find mm. these gardens that could be great. Um, so for people at home, what can we plant to provide our native bees with housing and food? This is that a lot of native bees don't actually live in hives. And I forgot to mention that before. They're often solitary. And so they nest in, um, a lot of them nest in the ground. So providing just bare patches of earth with loose soil for them is really important. So really maximising the unsealed surface. So limiting the amount of concrete you put into your backyard is really important because they will nest in the soil. But also you can provide food in the form of pollen and nectar. And it's important to recognise that you're after those kinds of resources. So some flowers will provide both pollen and nectar, some will only provide pollen. And things like native daisies, rock-cut daisies, are really good sources of both. Um, bluebells are really good sources of, of nectar and pollen, but also they can be used for male bees to sleep in. Often I come to Royal Park and I'll find a little male native bee sleeping in a, 
and a bluebell and pig face as well are really good choices for native plants that provide pollen and nectar, but also sometimes nesting resources because male bees, um, being solitary, often sleep in flowers. Uh, I find that imagery so cute, <laughs> so adorable. Um, that sounds great. Uh, is there a, a resource available to people um, if they would like to know more about the different plants that are incredibly useful for native bees or is it just a matter of googling them? There's a few resources. The AussieBee.com has quite a few resources on um, just getting to know different native bees as well as some resources for how to build your own bee hotel for some of the bees that like to nest in sticks. You can make your own to encourage them to nest in your garden. There's also Emma's project, the Heart Gardening Project. She's got a book which she's compiled with a bunch of different research researchers that provides a list of different plants that you can start with to plant in your garden for encouraging native bees. Awesome. Well, we can definitely uh, pop those links into our show notes later this morning. Just before we leave, Catherine, do you have a favourite bee fact or what's what's your favourite thing about, about native bees? Favourite bee fact? Um, I think... My favourite bee, that's a difficult question. I just love all of them so much. I think I can tell you my favourite bee is the one that's nesting in my garden at the moment. I think um, my favourite fact is that they are able to sleep in in flowers. And actually my favourite bee fact generally is that irises, if you've seen that brush in the middle of an iris, you know how it's got that little yeah. fairy bead in the middle? Yeah. That's actually evolved to be a bee bed because male bumblebees um, will sleep in those because they're also a lot of a lot of them have male solitary species too, and so they get pollinated by bees sleeping in them. So they've evolved to become a better bee bed. And and how long do they sleep for? Um, they will sleep overnight, the whole night. Oh my gosh! And some some native bees in Australia will actually sleep through the whole winter, so they'll just skip out on the cold bits. Wow. Okay. Well, I I think that that is definitely my favourite fact that I've learned today or have learned in general about bees. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us this morning. I think with uh, yeah, summer coming and with people having perhaps more downtime spent with their families, their children, uh, I think growing a lush garden uh, for bees to, to pollinate and to sleep in sounds like a great idea. Thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us this morning. Thanks very much for having me. That was Catherine Burthen speaking with us December last year about how we can provide native bees with food and housing. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to 3CR. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram.
Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to 3CR. Maybe you're listening to us on the radio on 855am, or maybe you're streaming us live at 3cr.org.au. We just heard from Catherine Burthen, and in our interview, you would have heard her mentioned the Heart Gardening Project, which is a community initiative led by Emma Cutting. The aim of the project is to create wildlife corridors on public land, transforming nature strips and other urban areas into insect-friendly gardens. I caught up with Emma on the weekend at one of the bee gardens in South Melbourne on Bunurong Country, and we spoke about the importance of community gardens, not just for the bees and other critters that depend on these environments, but... Um, the importance of community gardens to people and humans to strengthen relationships during these tough times. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, Emma. Could you please start by introducing yourself a bit more and telling us about your work? Hello, Fong. Good morning. Hello. Um, I am the founder of the Heart Gardening Project and we're based, we're a community initiative uh, and not-for-profit organization based in South Melbourne and we bring humans and nature together through street gardening and public plantings. Awesome and how did the heart gardening project come about? It came about through many years of street gardening and me observing that there was a massive opportunity in these spaces um, not only for nature which was kind of the first thing that hit me, but also for the community, uh, which definitely, um, that was one thing. Just uh, then also there were a whole lot of personal things around. I had chronic fatigue syndrome for 12 years and I really needed to make up for lost time there. <laughs> um, my daughter um, EJ was born and I really wanted her to uh, learn about nature in the, and seeing as we're in the middle of the city, so I had to do something there. Um, all those things happened at the beginning. And then, because then all these amazingly huge world events happened. We had the bushfires, we had the pandemic, we've had climate crisis just amp up. And all of those personal things plus these global things have just meant that we are there is such an opportunity here for us to use these spaces, these nature strips and these barren public spaces and turn them into beautiful gardens for nature. And while we're doing that, it's actually helping us because we are meant to be in nature and it does actually help us. There's the blue-banded bee. There it is right there. Can you see it? Can you describe to our listeners what we're seeing? Okay, so we're at the perennial basil in our laneway and we've got a beautiful blue-banded bee which is zooming around. Oh, it's actually going really slowly today because it's a cloudy day. <laughs> and they, so you, we could actually see it. But it is the f most beautiful... Oh, it's actually sitting... You're, oh, you're actually able to see it today. Normally it's just so fast but they are a native bee and they are absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's taken us six years to get them here um, and uh, you might notice that I'm excited. So you mentioned before that we're currently standing in a laneway, one of the laneway gardens. Would you mind describing to our listeners what kind of plants you've got 
along this laneway here? Absolutely, we've got all sorts. This laneway, me and my daughter, who's almost four, um, we look after this together. Uh, it's We don't really have any garden in our house. So, um, and along the streets aren't so safe for a, for a tiny little one. Um, so we have whoa, a lot of herbs. We have parsley, oregano, thyme, rosemary, marjoram. We have everlasting daisies, rice, uh, rice flowers. Ooh, can't remember the Latin for those. Nasturtiums. Um, we have calendula, catnip, which is one of the one of the plants that the blue banded bees like here. Bay, bay trees. We have um, woolly bushes, brachyscombs, so native daisies. Uh, it's ver it's varied, and that's probably about half of the plants. So I might not keep going. <laughs> Um, you mentioned something before about the fact that you and your daughter don't have a garden and so you use the space just outside your place to plant all these beautiful plants. What would you recommend or suggest or advise to people who are in a similar situation? They want to, they want to plant things, they want to be in nature, but they don't actually have the space because I imagine a lot of people do live in apartments and things like that. It's, it's um, definitely something you hear a lot of in this area, and I'm sure in many other areas um, this is the case. So this is where street gardening becomes so important. Um, so as I would say, if you've got some space out the front of your house, then have a look at what you can do there, because there is so much you can do. Um, Check out your council nature strip guidelines. Most now will let you do something. It's just how they'll let you do it. And then just get going with it. I mean, there's a lot of information on street gardening on, on our website, the heartgardeningproject.org.au. And then if you're really keen, I mean, I've, I've written a book so you can always get that. <laughs> but I, and I wrote that book because um, one of the, uh, our main focus at the moment is the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor. And it's, I've spent a year designing and, and we've started it as well. It's an eight kilometre pollinator corridor that runs from the Botanic Gardens to Westgate Park. And it's, we're aiming, it's community led. That, and it's within local government uh, constraints, but not with local government. Mm -hmm. um, and we're looking at planting 200 Indigenous-focused gardens. Um, that's about 18,000 plants in the next couple of years. And it's, it's really exciting. It's based on uh, science. I know you had um, Catherine Burthen on. It's, I've been working with with Catherine as well as about 20 other specialists on how to do this, um, you know, about wildlife corridors, how they work, uh, looking at urban planning, etc, etc. And uh, it's very exciting. It has a lot of support and um, that's the, so I wrote a book that is an intro to native bees, like our beautiful blue banded bee who still 
buzzing around. Oh. And, um, and an intro to street gardening, which in itself is, is its own type of street gardening. It's an, uh, its own type of gardening. It's, it's like, it's kind of like the wild west of gardening really. And there's, there's a whole lot of expectations that it's just really nice to know before you head outside your, your own place. And it's also an intro to what you can do around gardening for biodiversity in general. Emma, can you tell us more about these bee gardens, uh, the types of bees that are attracted to these gardens and the role of native bees in our ecosystem? So, so far, the Heart Gardening Project has helped to create over 70 street gardens. They're all, uh, they're all aimed to uh, increase biodiversity. And we do that through the choice of plants. We help with exotics and natives and indigenous plants. And um, so they're all mainly in South Melbourne at this point. I believe there are people, um, well, definitely um, my book has gone out around Australia. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm yet to find out whether it's actually outside, but I think it is. Um, the types of critters that come along. Um, yes, of course, look, we're, we're designing for native bees, but when we design for native bees, that means that a whole lot of other critters come along as well. It means we've got the honeybees. It's not that we don't love honeybees, we do. It's just they're, they're what's called generalists and they'll pretty much, they'll feed on most flowers. Native bees can be a bit more picky and they can, they're, they can be specialists. So, um, so we design for both. And um, so we've got native bees and we've just, and that's very exciting. And we've, I think this summer, we've seen about five or six different species. Uh, we, Catherine came out the other day actually and did the first biodiversity kind of um, survey, which is really exciting. So that's our research underway. When I start on these sites, they are so sad. It makes me very determined to do more when I see the difference, which really, they might go from nothing, like I cannot see anything living, to literally buzzing and wriggling beauties. That sounds amazing. That sounds incredible. Um, I would love for you to talk about the community impact that these gardens have had and, and also just the or have you heard from people in the community about um, how gardening has impacted them? The reaction from the community has been immense. It's actually, there are plenty of challenges, I have to admit, with what we're doing, which is you know, pretty new. But the reaction and the constant incredible support from the community is what I, I ride on that wave of massive positive um, feedback from the very, very beginning. Um, you know, there's cards in the mail that people would be handing me cash to do more or to. Um, we did crowdfunding right at the start. This was in the very first lockdown oh, a while ago now, um, and we did. Uh, we raised five thousand dollars to to build gardens and. It's every day, every day 
I hear stories about how someone's noticed something in the garden or they've noticed little critters more because of you know what I've been doing or um, they've, they've got kids that stop and they have conversations with their families either at home so it sparks conversations about nature which oh, it's that's very powerful stuff and that's the thing about street gardening is that it's so powerful it's underestimated as well I think it is just this gold mine of untapped power and it's it definitely has ups and and downs but there's so many more ups as well as bringing the community together in around the street gardens and when people are passing by as the volunteers that we have working together is so special and they all give of course their time and energy and positivity to create some really amazing gardens we don't use chemicals we don't use big machinery so it's it can be slow going they're really difficult sites so the volunteers are absolutely amazing and we're really going to be upping that over the next year uh, so we can yeah organize volunteers uh, better so we can do more gardens amazing I mean at 3CR we definitely know what it means to be a volunteer and we love we love that support from the community and, and people who want to get out there and help um, and give their time and energy to projects that they're really passionate about so yeah that sounds incredible there are so many people that want to help. That's what I've actually um, been blown away by as well. I get emails all the time by people wanting to help. What can we do? This sounds really good. So I, I know we're on to something. So now it's, it's time to really, really make it grow. Well, uh, it's been an absolute joy just to actually be here in the garden with you today, Emma. I was just wondering, before we um, left... Uh, today, was there anything else you wanted to to say? Get out there and get street gardening. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma, for joining us on 3CR today. It's been an absolute joy. And uh, make sure you check out the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor, the Heart Gardening Project, and follow Emma's wise words and just get out there and start gardening. Thank you so much, Funk. That's absolutely spot on. That was Emma Cutting from the Heart Gardening Project, urging people to get outside and start planting. If you would like to know more about the bee gardens the or the Melbourne Pollinator Corridor or really anything else that was discussed in our interview, you can visit uh, the Heart Gardening Project at uh, www.theheartgardeningproject.org.au. Thanks so much, Fung. That was such a wonderful interview. I just liked her describing the bee <laughs> during that. Um, up next, we've got a song for you. Um, Avril Lavigne's new album just came out yesterday, I think, um, and this is her new song called Bite Me. I might just add, uh, Evie, before you play the song, that there is a language warning um, on this track. So if you don't want to listen to the song, um, feel free to come back in four minutes.
And that was Avril Lavigne with Bite Me. Gosh, she looks exactly the same. It's so funny. Um, We will be right back after these messages. Transitions Film Festival returns this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about technological innovations and change-makers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February 18th to March 13th, with screenings in Melbourne and online nationwide. For the full program, visit transitionsfilmfestival.com. Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Coming up now, we have an interview that Viv Langford from the Climate Action Show on Monday uh, had with Dr Ruth Adler, who is a former 3CR presenter and diplomat. Uh, She was the Australian ambassador in Ireland and has served also in Brunei, Mexico and the Philippines. Uh, They spoke about the Green Climate Fund and Ruth's thesis that finance in the Paris Agreement climate regime Governance, Legitimacy and Prospects for Justice. You can hear the entire conversation at 3cr.org.au slash climate action, but here's a little excerpt from that now. Dr Ruth Adler is with us to talk about what next for climate finance. We are going to make this the year of accountability at Radio 3CR and after the big pledges made last year at Glasgow, Ruth is currently working on green finance. So I hope she will describe to us what we can look out for this year as the global climate finances start to flow, let's hope. So, hello, Ruth, and welcome to the radio. Thank you very much for having me, Vivian. I'm delighted to be here. Well, um, just to delight our listeners at 3CR, I'd like you to tell us about your time at 3CR. Back in the 1980s, um, I did a PhD in Latin American history and politics, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Mexico and I was very involved in Latin American um, community issues and solidarity and 
there was a program called Latin American Update, and I believe it's still broadcast. Um, so back in the day, um, I I wasn't one of the producers, but from time to time, um, I would go on the program and we would interview people. We'd talk about topics of current interest. And in those days, um, there was a lot of interest in Central America, you know, Nicaragua, the revolution in Nicaragua, the civil war in El Salvador, the uh, human rights issues in Guatemala, and of course, what was happening in, in South America as well. So, so there was a big focus on that and um, a lot of interest in, in Latin America. And our programs, we would often interview guest speakers and we, there was lots of music and lots of fun. Not many of us had had much radio experience, so it was always a bit of a work in progress trying to, trying to record things and get things to come out nice and smoothly and sound interesting, but it, but it was lots of fun. Oh, great. Well, good on you because, you know, for some subjects, 3CR just has about the only, is the only outlet. You know, for East Timor, for a long time they had their own show and then yes. they became free. And it was like, yeah, how would anyone have known about it except for 3CR? And I think Absolutely. Latin America is the same. You've had a career with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and you were an ambassador to Ireland and had posts in Mexico and the Philippines. So over these years, how did climate change become a more pressing issue? Well, I think that it, it, it's very much come onto the political agenda um, over the last 10 years or so. But my first engagement with um, climate issues was actually back in 1992 when they had the Earth Summit um, in Rio de Janeiro. And that was the that was the major international conference which saw the Climate Convention, the UN United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change agreed, and also the adoption of the Convention on Biodiversity and the Convention on Desertification. So really from the 1990s, there was, there was a, a real awareness that at a global level, the world had to do something to um, you know, address, address climate change. Um, Let's move now to finance. At the COP26 in Glasgow, a climate finance delivery plan was created by Canada and Germany. That's right. And I wonder, does this mean that developed countries like Australia will show clearly how and when they will contribute to the $100 billion per year green fund? I mean, is this going to be something transparent? And um, why, why has accountability been such a problem up to date? Under the Paris Agreement, developed countries have obligations to provide climate finance. They have obligations to sketch out or are outlining their nationally determined contribution, what they're going to do. But there, and there, there are also transparency requirements, but there has been a lot of negotiation and discussion about the implementation of the Paris Agreement. And one of the things that has been achieved has been the, has been the development implementation of the Paris Rulebook. And a lot of the rule book is actually about reporting and monitoring and verification of what countries or what parties to the convention and to the agreement are actually going to do in terms of their, their national actions. But um, certainly I think there's also an issue that often what goes on in the negotiations behind the scenes is not actually often made public. You know, there's the sort of what goes on in the, in the quiet rooms, you know, in the UN circles, and then what goes on at the sort of public and political level. Um, but... I think that the Paris rulebook has increased transparency and, you know, there are obligations that parties have to report um, both in terms of what they're doing with their nationally determined contributions, but also with their, you know, with their provision of finance and other obligations, other reporting obligations under the Paris Agreement. 
One of the one of the issues with the Paris Agreement is that the obligation to provide finance is legally binding on developed countries, but not legally binding on on other on other countries, and it doesn't actually specify how much finance. So the Paris Agreement, in a way, some legal scholars describe it as a bit of a creme brulee. It's hard on the outside and soft inside because even though it's a treaty and a legally binding agreement. Within it, there are a lot of non-legally binding obligations, and it's really left to parties to determine what they're going to do. Whoa, I'm getting oh, this is a delicious little example you've given us. I want to give you a, a specific example because I think for listeners, you know, finance hundred billion dollars. Like, who can understand what that really means? But at the level of a country, I looked up the Green Climate Fund it was established by 194 governments. And the idea was to limit greenhouse gas emissions in low-income countries. And I found an example, say, Senegal. Senegal has 16 million people and 44% of them do not have access to electricity. They were the first country in West Africa to adopt renewable energy laws and they received $226 million to increase rural electrification. Well, that sounds very simple to me, very practical. Rural electrification, here's your millions and no further fossil fuel development or no yep. dependence on yep. fossil fuel. Do yep. you have some other examples of how this money is being spent, like specifically? Well, the, on the Green Climate website, there is actually um, public information. All of the projects that they actually fund are actually published. They've got about $10 billion of funded um, projects and they've had two, rep two um, funding rounds. So the first one was around about 2015. And they mobilised about $10 billion. And then they have, over the last two to three years, they've had the first replenishment. But one of the problems is that um, rep the replenishment process is, of course, voluntary. And so, you know, develop many developed countries, including our own, are not pulling, are not pulling their weight. And so... Just a minute, can I interrupt there? When you say mobilising funds, does that mean governments are putting in money and incentivizing business or private they have yes yeah, so, so under the green climate fund um you can, the public contributions can be from public sources private sources um they can be from other sources and or alternative sources and there's no real set fixed definition of what climate finance is it's it's a very there's no, there's no agreed different no agreed definition so projects are being rolled out and i've heard recently a lot of people talking much more about climate justice and that's front of mind for me and there was a young Ugandan woman I saw at Glasgow called Vanessa Nakate and she said this is a quote how can we have climate justice if the people who are suffering the worst impacts of the climate crisis are not being listened to not being platformed not being amplified and are left out of the conversation yeah. I want to know how can climate finance be directed to the local people who know what is to be done? Um, I think that's morally right and it's often considered nowadays much more efficient. You know, the money yeah. is spent much more effectively at the local level. Yes. Um, do you think we will see a shift of climate finances going to the local level, like those Senegal rural electrification those are little microgrids in all yes. small isolated areas yes. do you think this is there's a trend towards that in uh, climate finance yes well certainly um, with the green climate fund one of their key principles is country ownership and country ownership embraces involvement of government at a national level but also at the at the regional and local level 
and that's something that um, that that should definitely happen. I think the whole issue of cli climate justice. I mean, there are so many dimensions to that. There's the you know there's the the justice aspect with respect to um, particularly vulnerable communities, uh, marginalised communities, um, you know, indigenous and local communities. There's also the intergenerational dimension, and um, how you know how you sort of quantify or qualify what intergenerational justice is also a very interesting topic as well. I mean, I suppose in the climate finance uh, space, what it means is to look to fund projects which will have a long-term benefit to a community and we and and also that when when projects are being developed that the the needs of future generations are also being considered um, in terms of the development and implementation of the project community consultation is very important because often there's a lot of communication when a lot of consultation when projects are developed uh, but then not so much in the implementation phase so you know, a project proponent might go to the you know the the, the nationally designated authority, which is a linkage point with the, with the fund, and they might have a great project, and they'll say, well, look, we've consulted with our you know indigenous and local communities, or you know whoever might be affected by the project, but then in the implementation there mightn't be much actual follow up, and certainly in, when I've looked at some of the green climate fund projects, some have been criticised for insufficient consultation with with local communities and often that intersects with indigenous and local communities as well okay thank you very much so we've been talking to dr ruth adler who's presently doing a phd in what is it ruth it's on the legitimacy of the green climate fund thank you very much and we want to track accountability for the pledges made at glasgow and the green climate finance is a big part so that was Viv talking to Dr. Ruth Adler, who is a former 3CR presenter and diplomat, just talking about her thesis and also the Green Climate Fund. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. So coming up now, we have a really special interview. Um, under the federal government's emergency pandemic relief scheme in 2020, Australian residents who had lost income were allowed to withdraw up to $10,000 from their superannuation in an expedited process designed to have low barriers to immediate entry. However, this scheme possibly led to tragic consequences that experts warned about early in the public consultation process. The early release of super had opened up a frontier for people to financially abuse their partners. So joining us this morning on the show is Rebecca Glenn, who is the founder of the Centre for Women's Economic Safety, which has been calling for better regulation and oversight of ways in which women can be financially abused. Rebecca, welcome to the show. No, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Um, can you give us a brief overview of what inspired you to found the women's um, the Centre for Women's Economic um, Safety? Sure. So I've been working in financial literacy and financial wellbeing in a range of roles for about 10 years. And I guess what I was concerned about um, in those roles was very few initiatives and programs uh, in that space address the structural barriers that women face. Uh, and even worse, there was really an assumption that people are free to make decisions to improve their financial well-being. And of course, it was really clear to me that women who are experiencing domestic violence, family violence, are not free to do that. And, you know, the vast majority of of people experiencing family violence are experiencing economic abuse as part of that broader pattern of abusive behaviour. So 
Uh, I set up the Centre for Women's Economic Safety expressly to address that, to prevent economic abuse, to reduce its impact uh, through improved understanding, but also to really advocate for social and systems change that can support women's economic safety and opportunity. Yeah, you've spoken before um, and drawn attention to the ways in which Australia's welfare system in itself allows and often entrenches that kind of financial abuse of our most vulnerable, especially women who are, you know, single parents who are receiving welfare, um, and it just doesn't hold perpetrators to account. Uh, That's right. I mean, what we have is a system that still assumes that, um, you know, partners in relationships have equal power, that if someone is the main breadwinner, that they will, of course, support other people in that household. And, of course, the reality for, for women experiencing domestic violence is that, you know, if they're not working, they are entirely reliant on um, the, the abuser. Uh, and, in fact, our welfare system means that they will be assessed on the income of that household. So they are not entitled to any resources of their own whether or not the perpetrator, you know, is is using that money for themselves or for the whole family. Uh, and furthermore, there is no mechanism by which we can hold perpetrators to account. So we're basically saying to women or, or partners of uh, abusive people, you're on your own. Yeah. And I think that needs to change. Yeah, it's such a strange thing to, you know, anyone who um, is in a relationship who goes on Centrelink or any sort of welfare payment um, suddenly realises, if they haven't been on that before, um, that they are often not entitled to any sort of income if their partner earns above a certain threshold, which is, you know, it's another conversation as to how high or how low that is, but it does enforce a certain level of dependence, which is just unacceptable. That's exactly right. I mean, perpetrators are also using the system to create debt for their partners. So they're actually, it can be like that that thing that I was talking about is called the couple rule. Um, And sometimes perpetrators of violence will use the system. So they'll insist their partner apply for um, the single person rate, um, even though they know they're living together. But they'll be coerced into doing that um, and then hold it over them as as leverage and indeed even sometimes use the Dobbin line of Centrelink um, to, to, to create um, problems for their partner. So we have seen many women um, with abusive partners being held to account by Centrelink for debt that they were forced to incur from their partner and from which they received no benefit. So there, there are a number of changes that we could look at that would really try and alleviate that um, pressure that's being put on on women. Um, just going back to this uh, superannuation scheme. So, just to give some background to our listeners, uh, in early mid uh, twenty twenty, um, when this scheme first came into play, as people had lost their ongoing income due to the pandemic, um, uh, you were then able to apply um, to uh, receive a portion of your superannuation up to ten thousand um, dollars in two payments. Um, so, when this was announced, were there many calls for better oversight over the eventual process? Um, I understand, like, there's a desire to make it seamless, especially in emergencies. Um, but considering that you know superannuation already has a pretty high barrier to entry and high safeguards to access it in non-pandemic times, so it seems like it's almost just ripe for manipulation at that point. Yeah, I think it was, and I think that's exactly what happened. Um, and um, people were taking the gamble that they could access 
you know, obviously a lot of people had specific and immediate needs and were able to access that money. There were warnings at the time that this would um, disproportionately impact women. I think that's almost certainly the case. Mm. Uh, and that the, the scheme would be right for, um, for abuse um, by perpetrators of domestic and family violence, and that certainly seems to be the case. What what is really sad, I think, in retrospect, and uh, I do say all of this with the the caveat that they were extraordinary times, and uh, you know I, I would I would not have liked to have been the government in that situation where there was just this immediate economic need of so many people. Um, but but what they did come up with about a week after they announced the the superannuation early COVID release um, scheme was, I think, a much more effective way of supporting people, which was through JobKeeper and various other sort of emergency payments, which kind of made the superannuation scheme unnecessary, and yet mm. they didn't sort of walk it back at all. So I, I think there are, there are some, some lessons to be learned in terms of um, if there are future economic emergencies, you know, what's an appropriate response. But, uh, but yeah, an unenviable position for the government at the time. Yeah, the the ATO actually uh, eventually admitted that they'd made no checks at all to the um, access scheme. And I think you've highlighted an important point, which is that when the government directly gives money um, with lower barrier to entry, that has less of a chance of being abused than perhaps um, reducing the already existing regulations on your own money, um, which then has led to this situation. Um, it was a Senate estimates hearing that appears to have finally drawn attention to these consequences. Uh, Treasury officials told a Senate estimates hearing that no warnings had been provided to those accessing their super about the threat posed by financial abuse, uh, saying it would be very difficult to determine whether someone had been forced to withdraw that money. Uh, it must be so frustrating to hear statements like that, especially like presumably after many warnings to that effect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and look, you know, one of the things that one hopes that, uh, you know, Senate estimates and, and some of the, the coverage that we've seen lately is that, you know, we don't, we, we do keep this front of mind for future schemes because that's true. Like, how are we going to determine uh, now, all of this time later, what was coerced and what was not coerced. And so what we're really keen on the Centre for Women's Economic Safety is how do we, um, whatever the, the, the initiative is, how do we increase hurdles for perpetrators and potentially increase evidence that can be used in a court later? And how do we reduce the burden on survivors? And so I think they're kind of the, the twin principles that we'd be looking at for any scheme where there is. And look, let's be honest, almost every scheme and every system has loopholes for abuse that abusers find and manipulate. So, you know, I don't think there is a magic bullet anywhere. But certainly if we increase our awareness, we develop our understanding of the way uh, economic abuse is perpetrated, then we're better set up to try and reduce the possibilities for it happening. Yeah, um, I, I think there is, you know, an ongoing problem in terms of how uh, people don't realise that removing friction or what they call friction in the t in the form of regulation often means, um, you know, uh, when you when they say unexpected consequences, I think it's more that they don't put themselves outside of the situation to see where it could be manipulated, and you know, freedom of action or freedom of movement in that case. Um, means that they don't see how um, 
people who aren't in their own specific circumstances, um, you know, it can suffer as a result. Um, the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees said that, you know, if the statistics of how many women experienced financial abuse since the start of the pandemic applied to the early release scheme, uh, that might suggest that more than 70,000 uh, people were victims of coercion in terms of um, accessing their super. That seems like such a huge statistic, but, you know, it, it's still reflective of the situation that we're in. Yeah, look, I mean, it's devastating to hear that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is there's that and more every day experiencing abuse through systems, whether that's taxation systems, whether that's Centrelink, whether it's family law uh, or banking you know, there are thousands and thousands of people, the majority of whom are women, experiencing economic abuse every day through systems, uh, and we're not looking at it. Uh, so that is, you know, that is a key driver for the activities of the Centre for Women's Economic Safety to, you know, to, to say, let's, let's look at how we can better design systems to support women's economic safety. And you raised the uh, the point just there about how people designing these things are make, looking to make things frictionless but not putting themselves in the shoes of people and how they're going to experience those systems with different circumstances. So that, you know, that to me just highlights the importance of lived experience insights. When you're designing these systems, you need people with lived experience of disability, with lived experience of financial abuse, with lived experience of domestic violence, with lived experience of um, a range of, of life events that can make things more difficult. Uh, you, you'll design a much better system that, as I said, you know, increases hurdles for perpetrators and reduces burdens um, for, for survivors and I think uh, would, would, would see a reduction or make it much harder for perpetrators to be, be doing all the, 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 the things they're doing. I think that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us to chat about this. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about um, your research or just where people can go to learn more about um, the ways in which perpetrators can perpetuate financial abuse? Well, I'd certainly encourage anyone to, to visit economicsafety.org.au as a website where really it places a, an economic abuse lens over a range of situations and financial products and includes a directory of services and information that people can access if they're having trouble in their relationship with money. So economicsafety.org.au. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We'll be right back after this message. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture, and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non conforming presenters, producers, and musicians dismantling the patriarchy, taking collective action, and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID-safe event. 
So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, you may have heard that PSA just before about um, our International Women's Day program and also the street party that we're going to be having. So as part of this year's 24 hours of International Women's Day, 3CR is hosting a street party next Tuesday, the 8th of March from 4 to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers and food and the event will be broadcast live so that you can experience the party from home. So here to give us an insight into what we can expect from the event is Lara Solio from 3CR. She's a long-time volunteer and is also helping to run the event. Uh, welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Lara. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm going all right. That's good. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what 3CR has planned for next week? Uh, yeah, um, this time next week I'll be thinking about um, setting up and hoping the, the rain isn't um, <laughs> <laughs> there. But, um, yeah, we've got a huge street party arranged for next Tuesday from about 4pm. And, um, oh, I'm going to turn that off. Sorry, I'm just on my way to work <laughs> and things are beeping at me. Um, yeah, so we've got a, a huge lineup planned, um, lots of music, and um, we're going to be having it in the alley or in the laneway next to the station. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, it's going to be so exciting just to have an actual physical party just with people as well. It's going to be a COVID-safe event, um, but we're just looking forward to also, you know, celebrating with our community and also just with um, people who uh, work at 3CR as well. Um, what kind of other things can people look forward to at the street party? Are there going to be some, you know, bands and things like that or what else is there going to be? Yeah, um, we've got we've actually got two MCs, which um, is pretty awesome to share the the day. It's a long day, so um, MC Ajakwai and MC Drek Shrester, um, who people will know from around the station. Um, the musical act is uh, Sister X, so Vicky, who does Mafalda, who've come to know quite well actually through 
lockdown and the community language programs, which is, yeah, I haven't seen her play. So I think um, outside of lockdown, she was doing a lot of gigs every week. So I'm really excited to see her play and her group. Um, and Calix, is the, it, that's their first show. Um, people might know Emma also from around the station. So this year is a bit different where we've got, um, you know, everyone's basically involved in 3CR in some way, all the artists. Um, and Rita Dangorian is from the um, Armenian um, group. So she's a singer who um, performs and does a lot of things with the Armenian community um, who I haven't met yet, but um, I'm really excited to see. And um, also DJ Marushti, um, people might know from Salam Radio as well. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a, a big variety of musical acts. It's going to be great. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I know we've had some um, uh, poetry and excerpts from DJ Rishi from Salam as well. Um, so yep. that's really fantastic. Um, what can people do to, um, you know, take part uh, if they can't make it physically to the street party? Um, the whole day is going to be broadcast live. So, um, well, you know, special programming. And um, from about 4pm, we'll go live from the street party. So, We've got a bunch of awesome techs involved that'll be um, helping with that, make that happen. Um, so yeah, you can tune in um, anytime from four and, and listen in. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for um, calling us today. Um, we also um, want to encourage people to not only take part in uh, the street party in our International Women's Day events, but also um, show your support by subscribing to 3CR as well. Um, if you love the kind of things that you hear on International Women's Day, uh, you should consider calling the station on 9419 8377 or going online to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe uh, to get in touch with us and um, be part of the community as well. Uh, thank you so much, Lara. Thanks so much for having me. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy. Taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Just to close out the show before we go home today, we've got one more song. This is 
Walking Home in the Rain by EST. Um, it's Melissa Bester who performs as EST or East. Uh, she's a South African born Australian singer, songwriter, and musician. This is her song, Walking Home in the Rain. In a funk, I'm really drunk, I know, I know. I shouldn't have come. My friends, they're all stressed. I seem depressed, I know, I know that this ain't my best. And I wanna go home, so I'm at the front door. I gotta go catch the train. But I miss it by a minute, so I'm making the decision to walk all the way. And I put my headphones on. My favorite song starts to play. And that was East Walking Home in the Rain. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Dot org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Food not bombs. 
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're just going to close out the show today, um, but I'll catch you up on what we've talked about this morning. Um, we had a chat to Catherine Burthen, who's a PhD researcher with the Interdisciplinary Conservation Science Research Group, just talking about um, bees and um, the environment in which they live in in the Royal Botanic Gardens. Um, we then spoke to Emma Cutting from the Heart Gardening Project, um, talking about um, the aim to create wildlife corridors on public land. We then had a clip from Viv Langford um, from the Climate Action Show um, talking to Dr. Ruth Adler um, about the Green Climate Fund and Ruth's thesis. Um, We then also had Rebecca Glenn from the uh, Centre for Women's Economic Safety uh, talking about um, how uh, women and other um, partners of abusive, um, sorry, uh, people who have abusive partners were coerced into withdrawing their superannuation and just how to regulate that as well. And last up, we had um, Lara Solio from 3CR talking about our street party that we're going to be having next week for International Women's Day. Um, I think that's it for the show today. Um, my name's Evie. You've been listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Stay tuned for Accent of Women coming up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.